Gateway, so good to be here with you this Sunday. And before we kind of move into our teaching and conclude this little mini series on who we are as a church and where we're hopeful to go uh, with like the company of the Spirit of God, this little series called As It Is, uh, a few things, kind of some housekeeping, if you will. So first is a shout out to all of the moms. And uh, what's, what's kind of beautiful about that is that we all come from a place. And so uh, whether you know your mom biologically or you've had a person who has stood in the gap, a, a dad, an uncle, a, a grandma, a cousin, whomever, I just, um, maybe now is the moment if you've not yet done so, send them a little text or uh, after this, give them a call and... You know, whether they're a follower of Jesus or not, they have been a gift to you in your life. And so today we we just give pause in this moment to give thanks to God for that. That is a, a sweet thing that the life we live now has been colored in by those who've gone before us. And that brings uh, all sorts of challenges and gifts. Um, but today we, we receive those as an opportunity to be loved by God in them. And so I just, uh, yeah, mom. Shout out Happy Mother's Day to you specifically. There it is. Um, other housekeeping things here for the Gateway Church. Uh, if you have been watching the news, then you may be aware that the building that we meet in physically, uh, the Come and Go Theater right in downtown Des Moines, that that building is going to be sold. Now, we don't know when it's going to be sold and the property itself is being parceled out. And so it's uh, certainly above my pay grade to understand how that stuff works. Uh, practically, the implications for us is that it is not likely to be a permanent space. And so as soon as we know what that looks like, uh, we will update you. But there's also a little catch within there. You see, we were uh, hopeful at our annual meeting. At that time, we had submitted a lease proposal to the group who manages the, the theater itself uh, to be there and to, to be there for a long while. And then, you know, we received contact from them that they're going to sell the property. And so that was, that's, that's sad. That's something to be grieved. And uh, what's the little catch is the basement spaces where we're hopeful uh, to open up for kids to start doing children's programming with Gateway Kids. And we are one step closer to that, uh, to having that space prepared. And so here's what we need to get there. Um, because if you've also been following along, you'll you'll notice that our kind of markers for entering into our next phase with COVID are approaching. They're, they're like, they're here essentially where we can start if you're willing to come back in person. And and trust me, we will we'll keep this going as long as there is a need and desire for it to, to, to be here. But that being said, what we practically need is if you've gotten the jab, that is if you've been vaccinated and you feel um, like it's not a burden on your conscience to come and gather, uh, then we would ask you in, to come and to do that and to volunteer. <laughs> so to make children's programming happening or to make children's program happening, we, we have to have people to do it. And so we just want to invite you. There's no compulsion. It's not like if we don't have it, then it's your fault. That's not the spirit of Jesus. Ours is invitation. And so I know a number of you have started your background checks and your training and all of that. If you've yet to complete it, please complete that information. Our uh, children's director, Christy Heilman, will be following up on that. And so those things are in the work. If you have any more questions, please 
info at thegatewaychurch.com, and we will attend to those things and try and communicate with you as best as we can. And so now we we turn our attention to kind of close out this little series here. Um, and so, you know, over these past few weeks, we've been working through some old and new language around formation. And this language is old in the history of the church, and it's kind of new around this small community called the Gateway Church. Uh, What's beautiful from, from my vantage point is that this language, though old in the church and new to us, it maps onto our desire to be formed out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in other words, it maps onto our desire to move from place of ambivalence and apathy and hostility toward our God and neighbors to, toward a place of compassion and hospitality and love of God and neighbor out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus. And this is really the language that we're using. It's this language of spiritual formation. Or this is just the process by which we are formed to become like Jesus and in turn, really our true self, like to show up to who we really are by the power of the Spirit. And at its core, spiritual formation, it is about renewal. And renewal, it's all about reformation, the, the creating of new things. Like at the close of the New Testament, and we see that the, the scriptures are coming to a close. That is, it's not all just going in a circle. There is a direction to it. It's not that all things are going to be made like brand new, like they're not going to be recreated or the old things are going to go. It's like, no, everything is going to be restored. There is a renewal that is breaking out. And so in general, uh, then like we, we are called in this process of spiritual formation to put on the new person by regular activities that are within our power. I love how Dallas Willard says this, he, we become what we could not be by direct effort. That is, we have the Spirit accompanying us through these rhythms of Jesus's life. So it's the truth of Jesus lived out in the rhythms of Jesus with the community of Jesus, where we quote unquote put on that newness of life, where we realize what is real about ourselves. And, and for us here, my, my hope is that this would all be invitation. Like we're not, as a leadership, myself specifically, I'm not looking to strong arm anyone to say, you must Sabbath, you must read your, the scriptures, you must pray and fast and meditate. Like, no, this is all invitation because this is the compelling life on offer in Jesus. And so this is really a decision you have to enter into with a community who's headed the same direction. And really, this is the invitation for today. It's the invitation, Lord willing, for tomorrow and the next week and the coming years and hopefully for the whole of our lives to be formed by Jesus, to be like him. And so just to flesh this out and really envision renewal as something occurring within and through us, we're going to look at two things this morning. I know I just did four too many chances. We're just going to look at two things this morning. First, how the writers of the Bible imagine renewal, and second, how we practically participate in God's renewal or how we 
change. And so first, biblical renewal. Uh, if you will, flip or tap your way on over to Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel is in the Hebrew Bible. Ezekiel's uh, one of the major prophets. And so if you're unfamiliar or you're new to the Bible, it'll be up on the screen. But I encourage you, uh, find a Bible. It's, maybe it's up on your shelf, a little dusty. Good, look at the table of contents at the front and then flip your way on over to Ezekiel. Uh, chapter 11. And, and as you're making their way, your way there, just a, a few words by way of introduction. Ezekiel is perhaps one of the most vibrant places to encounter God's vision for renewal in all of the scriptures. And this may sound strange, especially if you've read Ezekiel or if you're even a little bit familiar with how prophets roll in the Hebrew Bible. Because, I mean, Ezekiel itself, it takes some work. He takes some work to get into your body. There's graphic imagery and like dense, dense symbolism that simply do not map onto our lived experience. And that makes sense. It's an ancient text. Uh, but I, I mean, just for example, like four verses in, in chapter one, uh, Ezekiel's sitting there and all of a sudden this storm cloud comes and it's this God mobile is how some describe it. Like God's personal presence shows up. It's, it's creatures, these winged creatures with different faces, some human, some animal. And then there's a platform that's just shimmering with light and a throne and one like, like the, like a human one on there and yet the face is not so it's this really intense imagery and you're like four verses like what in the world what do i do with this well uh you would say i keep reading that's the goal and then you attend to who ezekiel is and so certainly it feels like a stretch to say that ezekiel gives us a vision for renewal well, that makes sense if we're disconnected from his world. But I think that when we make every effort to receive Ezekiel as he is, not as he think we, we think he ought to be, that is like a late modern Westerner, then we can indeed receive a rich vision of renewal that comes right from the scriptures and is in front of us as an invitation. And, and so uh, part of that reason to just linger here a bit longer of why Ezekiel does feel strange, it's because Ezekiel's trained to be a priest and he's a priest who's called to be a prophet. And so that what, it, what that means practically is when Ezekiel talks, he talks like a priest. When he thinks, he thinks like a priest. And unless you are saturated in Leviticus and priestly codes and how all of that goes, like, you know, the ornaments and the tabernacle and all of that, his imagery will be be a little odd. So it does take effort to get into it. The more time I spend considering this, really the more confidence I have that the peculiarity of Ezekiel is in part the gift of Ezekiel. And we'll attend to that a little bit more towards the end. For now, just an overview and then the, some specific texts to help us get into this idea of God's desire for renewal. So in addition to that like God mobile moment in chapter one, we also find out that it's Ezekiel's 30th birthday. And there he is sitting on the edge of an irrigation canal and like near a refugee camp. And rather than celebrating, he, he's in a place of despair. He has been a part of an initial group that has come out of the land, out of Jerusalem, where he was training to be a priest, most likely. And there he is sitting there in a place that is not his home. He is in exile. And it's there on his 30th birthday, the year that he would have been like received as a priest and installed as one that he receives this prophetic commission to be God's mouthpiece. That's what a prophet is. 
And this is not like the romanticized vision of encounter that I often carry, and perhaps you do, of like, I don't know, like a divine vision. I think of things in the New Testament like Peter and these, um, like, I don't know, dreams and visions taking place. Or this is, this is different because Ezekiel, he is commissioned to go and preach judgment or justice to a people who've been forcibly displaced from their land and then tell them that the land they love and kind of the the epicenter of that land, the temple, it's going to be destroyed. And to add insult to injury, Ezekiel, he's told that the people he's going to preach this message of justice to will not receive it. They are, quote, stiff of face. In other words, their hearts are hard. And what's ironic about this whole scene that unfolds really in the beginning chapters is that Ezekiel encounters the living God in a land that is not Israel. Let that sink in for a moment. Yahweh is not in the temple. Now, this is why this is significant. In their imagination, the temple is the locus point of God's presence. It's the overlap of heaven and earth. The temple is where you encounter God's abiding presence and you come and you like remind yourself of his goodness. You receive his goodness and you tell him and others how you are aligned to him. And so if God's not there, (laughs) what's he doing in Babylon? Like, just think about this. God's presence is on the move. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Because the temple, that place, is it orders the rhythms of Israel. And yet, what we see is that that place is actually compromised. God's not there because compromise has become the standard practice in that place. It actually does not reflect his goodness. And there's even this elaborate vision in chapter 8 where Ezekiel's given this grand tour of the temple. But what he sees is there's, um, there's these idol statues that are set up. There's worship to gods who are not the one true creator God in the temple. And God leaves out the east, which is toward Babylon. He is on the move toward those who are willing to receive him wherever they are. This is good news for you and for me. And what Ezekiel develops over the next like 20-ish chapters is essentially this. If we are tied to a form, If we're tied to a certain way of doing church, we have everything to lose. But if we're hopeful in the substance that animates the form, that is God's personal presence, we have everything to gain because he comes to those. He is found by those who seek his face with the fullness of who they are. God's not hiding. He's turning aside to those who seek him. It doesn't matter where you are. You can be on the bank of an irrigation canal. You can be on your couch right now. You could be in a black box theater. God meets those who seek his face without compromise. And this message, it breaks out in chapter 11. And so if you've been waiting this whole time, you found your way there, Ezekiel chapter 11. Pick up with me in verse 17. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will Gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. Those are the ones that Ezekiel sees in chapter 8 in the temple. 
Verse 19, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. So here, even in the face of rejection, God is desiring this this restoration, this renewal. He'll bring a remnant, a, a group of people back to the place where their worship can be restored. And and then the hope that's embedded in these words in chapter 11, man, it just like, it breaks out in full song, like some sort of huge chorus of song and vibrant color and all of the images, like the poetic images that Ezekiel can muster, they come forward in chapters 33 to 48. And I love how biblical scholar Chris Wright describes this in his book, uh, The Message of Ezekiel. He says this, the range of material in these chapters can be appreciated when we see what God promises in those chapters. He promises to bring Israel, and get this, out of anarchy, into the land, back from disgrace, up from the grave, together out of brokenness. It is, in modern jargon, a truly holistic gospel. And now, if you're sitting in your living room and you feel a desire to like say amen or something, you can just like put it in the chat box. This is the appropriate response. This is exactly what's going on. See, Ezekiel was ministering to a people who were broken and battered in every conceivable way. There were political and economic and agricultural and social and judicial, religious, personal, relational, and spiritual dimensions to their sin and suffering. And get this, Chris Wright, this is like the money piece right here. And God intended intended to tackle every aspect of that need, such as the breadth and depth of the biblical gospel. This is the beauty. Renewal is of a word, is how gospel is translated. It is renewal, holistic. This is what God intends to bring forth in all of the earth. I mean, just listen to Ezekiel 34 itself right here. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. In other words, justice will come. I will shepherd the flock with justice. This is our God. This is who he is. This is the character that he weaves into the fabric of the world, the character that is marred, and yet he is intent on bringing it to bear for the good of all creation. He will shepherd the flock with justice. See, spiritual formation, it is about renewal because we who are being transformed are the ones through whom God is choosing to bring about this renewal. Because renewal is all about reformation. God's not throwing it all out. No, he's saying this is good and beautiful and valuable and I want it and I want it near me that I'm actually so much I'm going to move toward it. So you know that line where people say, God can't stand sin? That's ridiculous. He put on flesh. Who's Jesus? Just think about that. He is so near. This is who God is. You see, these two things, formation and renewal, they flow together. God's presence, it transforms his people. In the language that Ezekiel is, it turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And his transformed people thereby become his dwelling place. 
And God's dwelling place is the place where life bursts forth. It's as though things that were dead cannot stay dead in God's presence. Where God dwells, life dwells as well. And, and this, this is certainly true for Israel, but it, it also comes to bear for the nations. It also comes to bear for creation. Just check this out in chapter 47. This is verse uh, 1 and 8. The man, so he's having this vision of this restoration of all things. This is near the end, chapter 47 and 48. This is where this gets played out. And so he's brought on this, another tour of the temple. And this time, Jerusalem is never named, which is very interesting. But this is what he says in verse one. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced the east. And this water flows toward the eastern region. It goes down into the Jordan Valley where it enters the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the sea, the salty water becomes fresh. And the imagery that extends beyond that, if you were to keep reading, it's all about what is dead coming back to life. This is what God's presence does. It it catalyzes life. And then life begins to move and live into the life and it flourishes in the absence of death. See, formation, formation is not just a Christian thing. It's not just a religious thing. I mean, it is those things, but at its core, at its base, formation is a human thing. To be formed is to be human. See, we are all being shaped by the stories that we take in. Just think about the type of person you're becoming when you watch a movie or you follow a certain person. Why do they call them influencers? Just think about this. Okay, it's clicking. You got it. You're like, oh my gosh, because the sole objective is to influence what? Or rather, who? You and me. We are being shaped actively and passively by social media and the news and our family and our friends. And we too are being shaped by the habits that order our day to day. I mean, it's pretty popular right now to talk about the power of habit because habits are powerful. They shape you into a type of person. That is to say the things that you do inform who you are and who you will be. In other words, your habits inform your destiny. Like that, there's a progression that takes place there. And so with that in mind, think of Israel for a moment, kind of back in that framework of Ezekiel. These people are far off. They've been removed from that land. They became people whose hearts were hard toward God and soft toward the world. So much so that they were actually unrecognizable from their world. And if you remember from a few weeks back, the world is just simply this, a system that is opposed to God's definition of flourishing. And what Ezekiel displays is God's shepherding heart for the lost. He actually wants to attend to hardened hearts and make them soft, give them new hearts, give them a new spirit. See, to call someone lost, like we, we're like, ooh, judgment. No, no, no. It's not a declaration of judgment. It's not a moral accusation. It's just a fact of position. You are not where you ought to be, namely in the loving care of God. And what's so striking for us is that Israel's compromise, their hard-hearted rebellion, it's a picture of our own, of our own redefining of good and bad on our own terms to serve our own interests. And yet, 
their picture of compromise as our own. It is for our good. And this is this is true all over the Hebrew Bible. Like when, when we read the scriptures and Israel, and we encounter them and we encounter things like, uh, let's just take this example of polygamy. That stands as a negative example. See, it's like taking of wives as property is not what God intends. Taking of any persons as property is not what God's intend for, for the flourishing of people. If you just read the stories that surround the taking, and there's this theme of seeing something that is defining it as good for yourself and taking it on your own terms. And when people take women as their property, look around in the Hebrew Bible. It does not bode well. It causes strife and division, and it causes this callousness of heart that ultimately yields to the objectification, further objectification of people. It is not good. It stands as a negative example, so we might see it and go, that is not what God intends for flourishing, and move toward God. Instead, we we say, well, if that's in the Bible, then God must have condoned it, and therefore, if God condoned it, I want nothing to do with him. See, this idea of deconstructing in that way, man, it's, I'm not, I'm not saying it's dangerous. I'm saying it's necessary to do that, to move toward God. You look at that, you look at how somebody is objectified as property and you say, that is not good. Why is that happening? How does God feel about that? Why is this taking place? What does that say about me? And we ask these questions, we move toward God. But you know what's beautiful about the negative example is that it reminds us that that's not the only side of the story. See, just as that negative example stands, so too does Israel's restoration stand as a positive example of our own restoration. It's a foreshadowing of our own renewal. And Ezekiel d- describes this as the Spirit of God breathing new life into the depths of humanity's decay. This is Ezekiel 37, and and there, when that life comes, when the Spirit comes in that place of new life with real people encountering real life, God says, I will dwell there. This is good news. Renewal is real. People of compromise can be captured by grace. See, Ezekiel beckons us to be more than just intrigued listeners because the question of formation or discipleship even, it isn't just a question of what we can learn, like what we can think about. It's a question of how we can become a different type of people. We should want to become people of love. Like we should look to Jesus and say, that is the goal. That is the godly ambition to become like him. That, That is a good thing. And then we should make plans to do it to attend to it. And as we concluded last week, like formation or change, it is actually possible. We can be transformed out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus by the power of spirit. We can do that, but just because it is possible does not mean that it is inevitable. We must choose to enter into that process with Jesus. And what follows then is if if indeed renewal is possible, What does it mean to actively enter into this? So that what follows is not the way for renewal, but a way. 
This is uh, what, what's emerging here is this little working theory of transformation. This is not the end all be all. This is adapted from, if you're familiar with Dallas Willard's Golden Triangle and a handful of other churches have done some work with this that have been really helpful for me. Uh, but it looks like this. You see, what we have is that change comes as we receive the truth of Jesus. And you notice that the truth is at the top of the triangle. We receive the truth of Jesus and we embody that truth in the rhythms of Jesus with the community of Jesus, all empowered by the radiating power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so as we kind of land the plan, a brief word on each. And again, this is like a precursor to what is going to follow. This is hopefully we, we will have more and more time to unpack and fine tune this and learn together and to put this into practice. But for now, truth. Uh, see, for transformation to occur, we need to know what's real. And, and by real and truth, I mean just simply what corresponds to reality. And the best way, this is Willard, gosh, he's littered all over the place here. The best way I've heard to describe reality is simply what we run into when we're wrong. That's kind of a <laughs> harsh way of saying it, but it's, it's helpful. It's like this collision with reality. It can be disruptive. It can be frustrating even. But what it does is it reorients our world and it shakes loose faulty thinking where we have called bad good and good bad. And ultimately it displays that thing in front of us. This is often our experience with Jesus. It was very much my experience with Jesus. Um, he, I mean, this is what Jesus himself says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And more, he says that his teachings themselves were truth. And that the truth of Jesus' teachings, who is also him, that that will set you free. In other words, Jesus is truth. He teaches the truth, and as we walk in his truth, that is, if we abide, if we remain in his truth, freedom is possible. Or, you could say, change is possible. And as simple as it sounds, it is indeed frustrating, because <laughs> it's like we get it up here. We even talk about how we get it. We have doctrinal statements and statements of affirmation and all of these things. But take gravity as an example here for a moment. See, we are all governed by gravity. Uh, it is our reality here on earth. There is no one who is uh, outside of the rules of gravity on planet earth. We know it in our heads and we know it in our body. So if you're in a plane and you're flying up in the sky, though you are far from the ground and the plane is working really hard against gravity, it is still governed by gravity. And this is something that you become soberingly aware of as you're about to go skydiving. I've done this a handful of times. And it's in that place when you are thousands of feet in the air, you are told to trust new information, namely that gravity will not kill you because you have a parachute in a backpack. And if it is properly deployed, it will catch the wind and catch you. Now, you can know all about that. You can profess that truth all you want. Sure, in the plant, you can sing about it if you want it. You can write a creed about it if you want it. You can confess it as much as you want. But my goodness, even let's say you do that and you know the physics and you watch the videos and you read them in, you get the point. If you know all of that, there comes a moment when you're in the air and they say it's your turn to jump and you kind of like awkwardly move toward this open thing and then there's the feet of the plane going down and you have to like, like there's the moment when it's time for you to do that. 
and you're like, okay, let's go. And then your body doesn't move. <laughs> Why doesn't your body move? Because your body knows about gravity. So you have to literally work it in to say, this thing will work. And then you have to move your body out there. Well, you don't have to, you can just land the plane. You don't ever have, they don't like force you out of the plane unless you're, if you're thinking of skydiving, that's not what, that's not how they roll. They will take your money, but it's like, you have to trust that the parachute will indeed catch the wind if deployed properly and then catch you. You have to have your mind and your body in the same place. In other words, you have to have this professed truth and this embodied truth come together. This is why it's so hard to break off from old lies that we hold on to and that we live into. Like if we've confessed for a long time that, my goodness, uh, it, like that we're ugly, then it doesn't matter if somebody compliments us and says we're beautiful. Like the, 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 that statement, that almost that truth that we've come to believe. It's like, it's not really true, but it's a statement we've come to believe about ourselves. It's in our body. It's like, it's in our muscle memory. And so it doesn't matter if it's not true. It's just, it's like, you could say it that, no, I'm beautiful. I'm beautiful. I'm beautiful. And yet you've lived a different reality for so long. It's, it's in your bones. You have to work against that with great intention. See, truth is required for change but it is not sufficient for change. We, we need a whole body movement toward truth. And that's where the rhythms of Jesus are about how we get the truth about who we are into our bodies, into our lived experience. In other words, the rhythms of Jesus are how we move from professed truth to embodied truth. And these are not new things in the life of the historic church. I mean, really, until the past 200 years, these are things that the church did with high regularity, things like prayer, things like fasting, things like meditation and Sabbath and giving and chastity. And yes, that is a beautiful word. In case you don't know what chastity is, because it's 2021, that means not having sex with someone who is not your partner for life, like your spouse, one man, one woman. And sex is not just the, the act of it. It's everything that proceeds to it. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the lust of the heart. It's not just a matter of your body there. It is a matter of the core of who you are, your heart. These are things that the church has practiced for so long. And they've done it with their bodies to display their faith. And what we've done is we have shifted everything from there, our lived experience to our minds, to professions of faith and creeds, statements that quote unquote thought leaders, whatever that statement even means, have signed or their churches signed. And then we just don't do anything with them because it's as though we can think about it rightly, but we don't have to live according to it. And, and the thing where this becomes challenging is like loving your enemy praying for those who persecute you. Because think about what loving your enemy does. As you like take that and you like move, that, that requires your body. You have to show up to physically love your enemy. You can't just think nice thoughts about your enemy. How, how do they know that? Like, how do they know that you love them? See, loving your enemy is a category breaker. It, it makes a person who was your enemy no longer your enemy. So then you're two humans together. And this is something you do with your, your body. You move toward them. You have to show up to do this. 
And again, this is more of a, of a primer than some sort of full-throated explanation of the rhythms of Jesus. But for clarity, by the rhythms of Jesus, we mean more than the spiritual practices. We certainly do mean the spiritual practices, what some call the disciplines. But I think Luke captures this so well in Jesus's first recorded teaching. So this is how Jesus rolls when he teaches. He comes into the synagogue. This is in Nazareth in, in Luke chapter 4. And he stood up to read, verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Just notice here for a moment before we go on that the spirit is the activating and animating presence that's doing this stuff. So just keep that in your back pocket. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, the rhythms of Jesus, they order the chaos of the world. They order the chaos of our interior world as we give ourselves to him in a daily and weekly and monthly and yearly rhythm. And it orders the chaos of the world outside of us. See, the rhythms of Jesus are about renewal because spiritual formation is about renewal and renewal is all about reformation. And so as we receive the life of Jesus, we then give the life of Jesus. Just take fasting, for example, because I know that probably most Wednesdays y'all are fasting. And so uh, fasting is about more than just like stimulating your metabolism. You, you know what I'm talking about right now? This like this whole idea of intermittent fasting, like we will fast for our body image, but not for the Lord Jesus. That's bizarre to me. But, but it's about more than that. And it's about more than your personal holiness, believe it or not. See, fasting says, I withhold food to stand in solidarity with those who have none. And that place of withholding now becomes a gift for those who do not have it. See what that does? Fasting not only puts us in solidarity, then we can feel with our bodies the pain of others. So we can move toward them with love, but then we can actually give them a gift because our abstaining has added excess, which then can be given away. So because the two go hand in hand, the rhythms of Jesus are for the good of others. We are not the end goal. You see, <laughs> there are places of encounter and those places and spaces of encounter they, they presume that and we are being filled up in order to give away. And so like the rhythms, they assume that we're doing this with community, that we would know where the need is so we can attend to it. And community is just people headed in the same direction. A community encompasses this full range of relationships. It could be your community group, your church writ large, your best friend, spouse, therapist, parent, whomever, just heading in the same direction. And ultimately, community is where we like work out the truth of Jesus and the rhythms of Jesus together. It's the, the people of God who we do this with. And, and they give us, the people of God, give us at least two things. They uh, give us two things we desperately need. They challenge us and they support us. And it, it's just, it's so interesting because often it's the people we love the most that get the worst of us, like where the worst of who we are comes out before them. And the more I've thought about this, it's, I think it's less that like the worst of me comes out. I think it's just that I am me there. Like I think about my spouse, like how 
like the my grouchiness, my pushiness, my stubbornness, my arrogance, me being inconsiderate, those things come out because I don't have my ego up. I'm not trying to please other people. I just am right there. And so those things come out. And so I can be supported in that and I get what I need, not what I want. That is the gift. I also get challenged. I can be supported because sometimes those emotional agitating things that we do with one another, like they come from a place where we ourselves are strained or stressed. And so we can get support, but we also get challenged. And in a healthy community, that's what we receive. We receive both of those. And at its best, this is done with humility. And where this is taking place, I I thoroughly believe that this is God working through the spirit in these webs of thick relational trust. And the key there is it is God working through. See, all of these things, the truth of God, the rhythms of Jesus, the community of Jesus are all empowered by the radiating presence of the Spirit. See, the the Spirit is the one who actually brings us into community with the triune God. And this this is, so we're never doing the work of transformation alone. I certainly community, but also the Spirit of Jesus. And, you know, last week we, we quoted that North African uh, church father, St. Augustine, who said, without God, we cannot. But without us, God will not. In other words, our work in the world and therefore our worship, this interactive relationship with Jesus, it is caught up in the Spirit's work within us. See, the Spirit of the living God is here. It is the presence of Jesus with you and with me. The Spirit bears His fruit in our life. The Spirit is at the core of formation. And this is really the picture of Ezekiel 37. This is life coming out of a place of death. This is a famous story. It's the valley of dry bones and the Spirit breathes and there's sinew and flesh and bone and life in these people. So Yahweh Himself tells Ezekiel that His Spirit is coming to bring his people back to life. And this wind blows over and the people stand up and the wind fills them with breath and new life. These are new humans for a new creation. See, the point is that God's spirit is going to give humans new hearts so that they can be the kind of people who participate in his new creation and his work of renewal people who love him and obey him, who abide in his renewing work. Change is possible, and it comes when we receive the truth of Jesus, the the reality that Jesus has come and he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the one who you've been waiting for. God says he will do this. I am he. I am, Jesus says to point us back to the reality that when we say Jesus is God, the emphasis is on the Jesus part. He shows us the full embodiment of what God is like. Change is possible through the truth of Jesus and the rhythms of Jesus taken in to our bodies, from our minds, to our hearts, to our hands, with the community of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. So my one simple prayer is this as we close. Come, Holy Spirit. Come. Breathe new life on this church. Breathe new life on me. Come.
we pray. Amen.